Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. If you want to hear another show that Mike was on, there's a show called Smoke 'em If You Got 'em. It's with Sarah Heppala and Nancy Rommelman. And uh, we hold forth on some of the issues of the day. I like those two. It's a really good hang, I guess, the kids say. None of us are kids. This, on this, the Gist Saturday show, we bring you one from the week and one from the vaults. From the week will be a new episode or a portion, an unaired portion of our talk with Greg Lukianoff, who wrote the book, The Canceling of the American Mind. It has a subtitle that's hopeful, but I like, I like that title. And we uh, talked to Greg on Monday and Tuesday. There was just so much to talk about. Why not bring you more? It was all good. People liked the first two parts of the interview. So there's that. And then the one from the vault... Let's go with this talk that I had, this uh, conversation that I had, that came to mind because the number one Netflix TV show is something called Pain Hustlers. Uh, haven't seen it yet, but it has a great cast, and we've actually, it's, it's, I haven't seen it because it promises to be so good in that Michelle, who hates lantern flies and loves a good Netflix drama recommended that we all watch it together. So I think I'm going to do that maybe tonight. Anyway, Chris Evans stars, Emily Blunt stars. But the reason I'm talking to you, I cannot bring you a Chris Evans interview. I can bring you this interview I did in February, uh, last, last February, February of 22, with Evan Hughes. He wrote the book, The Hard Sell. Uh, and that book is what was the basis for this Pain Hustlers show. Enjoy the interview is a really, really well done book. And I think we could all look forward to uh, Emily Blunt's on-screen chemistry with Chris Evans. About 10 years ago, Insys, a billion-dollar pharmaceutical company, was raking in money. Their star drug, Subsys, was an under-the-tongue spray that could quickly counter the fiercest pain, so-called breakthrough pain that a cancer patient might experience. But the thing is, even if all the cancer patients legitimately being treated for breakthrough pain took Subsys, it wouldn't account for all the record-breaking sales they were experiencing because Subsys consisted of a killer ingredient. Literally, perhaps you've heard of it, fentanyl. Insys didn't invent fentanyl. They weren't the first to exploit fentanyl. What they did was essentially weaponize fentanyl. They exploited a system that was ripe for exploitation. The result was a 10-week trial, followed by 15 days of deliberation where the company's founder and key executives were fined and jailed. It's all chronicled in the hard sell, crime and punishment at an opioid startup. Evan Hughes wrote the book. He's with me now. Thanks for coming on, Evan. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the outline of their operation, how it grew and what their strategy is, and then I have a lot of questions about implications. So in the early days of Insys, who was John Kapoor, the CEO, and what was what was he trying to do with the drug market? So John Kapoor comes up with this drug, Subsys, and 
He is trying to enter this market. It's a niche market for extremely potent opioids that are fast acting. They're supposed to be taken on top of other opioids to, to counter this breakthrough pain, as you said. And his, his late wife had died of cancer and had suffered terrible pain. So that was always the origin story that he told, that he wanted to develop a drug that would help people like her. And spends a great deal of money developing this drug, which is not unusual. It takes like a decade. And then when the drug launches to the market, as you say, about 10 years ago, initially, it's basically a flop. Because when you look at it, like, what's the potential audience for it? The potential audience is always small. The, the breakthrough cancer pain, it's going to be a niche drug. And it is an expensive drug, to be fair. So there's still some potential for revenue there. But what Kapoor and his allies kind of figure out is that even before they come along, the majority of the market isn't actually breakthrough cancer pain patients. Uh, the majority of the market is people experiencing all kinds of pain. So these drugs, that their little group of competitors, these rapid onset opioids, they've already been targeting so-called off-label prescribing, meaning prescribing that's not for the indication that it was initially conceived for. Mm -hmm. um, and so they start going after basically prolific prescribers of opioids more generally um, who have some history with these drugs. And a lot of them have very few cancer patients to begin with. Right. So let me pause you there and just go back a little bit about Kapoor. Who's he? Is he a, is he a chemist? Is he a businessman? Is he, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical genius? Is he a scoundrel? Who is he? <laughs> you, you really put a name to all of those things. I mean, he gets his PhD in biochemistry, but like before that, he is born in India. Uh, he comes to the U.S. with the proverbial $5 in his pocket, gets his PhD, goes into pharma, makes some incredibly smart moves early on. And by the time he's founding Insys, he is mega wealthy already. You know, he's always constantly got his fingers in a number of different companies, startups. He's like seeding this company with money. He's running this other company. And um, a lot of them run into some regulatory trouble. And he's known as kind of like he's always just kind of one step above uh, ahead of the law or the regulation. Although sometimes not. I mean, he has been fined, right, in the past. Absolutely. And, you know, he was hauled before a congressional committee and pled the fifth about problems at one company. He, he was sued uh, and settled, you know, multiple lawsuits at, at prior companies. But again, like not all of that is that unusual in pharma. So these fast acting fentanyl um, extreme painkiller drugs or euphoria inducing drugs, one was a pill, then there was a lollipop and he invented the or developed this sublingual fast acting right under the tongue uh, application. But that wasn't, as we've documented, that wasn't necessarily the killer app because there weren't enough prescribers of it for its on label use. Give me a sense of the off-label world. Is it inherently nefarious? Any doctor who goes off-label is doing something wrong? Is it a kind of everyone knows that, you know, off-label uses are sometimes totally legitimate. It's just that the FDA is, they're, they're kind of slow to approve these things. What's this? What's, give me a sense of the um, ethics in general of off-label prescriptions. 
So that's a good question because off-label prescribing, you know, even just the terminology makes it sound kind of sinister and, it does, and it's right. really not inherently sinister. Uh, you know, probably, you know, your listeners, we may all have been prescribed something off-label, like people who are trying to quit smoking. Sometimes they'll prescribe Wellbutrin, which is an antidepressant. Uh, you might have like seizure medication is used for bipolar disorder or depression. But what you have here in this case is an extremely potent painkiller. And so the reason it's approved is, you know, the FDA studies it for a particular use. In this case, the use of like breakthrough cancer pain. And so you've got you've got patients who are really in dire straits and that the FDA is deciding not that it's safe, period, but that the drug is safe enough relative to the benefits for that particular patient. So, but it's just a very different case, right? If you're, if you're an end stage cancer patient, you want the most powerful thing out there and it's legitimate for the, for society to want a powerful medication for that person. Totally different story. If you have a patient who has moderate chronic back pain and you're giving them this medication that you know used to be only available in a hospital setting and um you know saying here here's a box of this medication and it's so liable to misuse abuse dependency so a lot of these doctors who are the top prescribers were essentially reckless prescribers and insis went right after them with their marketing efforts was this a unique insight to them? Oh my God, we have this list. Or was this well-known in the pharmaceutical industry that anyone can access a list of the people who are the top opioid prescribers in America? Yeah, well-known in the industry that you know you can purchase data from third-party companies that collect it from pharmacies that tell you like who are the top prescribers of a particular class of drug or what have you. And the detail, you know, it's pretty granular. Every pharma, you know, every pharmacy transaction. So, you know, when you and I fill a script, the pharma industry knows about it yeah. <laughs> and they know what doctor gave it to you. And then they go visit those doctors and literally knock on their door. I, you know, not, not everybody knows this, that, you know, drug companies, they blanket the country with sales reps who have given territory and then they go knocking on doors face to face and uh, try to build relationships with those doctors and persuade them. So once they had the list, that wasn't it. That didn't solve all their problems. They still had to use techniques to get in there and to get the doctors to prescribe it. Uh, tell me about some of those techniques that you chronicle. You're right. They needed something to di differentiate themselves from the competitors who were also all going after these top doctors. Insys's technique was to use a so-called speaker program, which is not an uncommon thing in the pharma industry, but to use it as essentially a bribery vehicle. You go to these top doctors, you say, we're going to hire you to give little talks to other potential prescribers of the drug, and you're going to tout the benefits of the drug. And you know that's a perfectly legitimate sort of peer-to-peer -peer marketing idea that is used widely in pharma. Um, but the head of sales that they hired, who's kind of this crazy character in the book, uh, Alec Berlikoff, he says, look, the programs, they really don't matter. 
It's not about the presentations. It's not about what this doctor teaches other doctors. The point is we keep feeding money to the speaker. Every time he gives the little talk, he gets his like two or three grand just to have dinner. We'll do it like once a week and get these guys on the payroll. And in return, they're going to they're going to prescribe the product. Yeah. And with some with some of the audiences, they were audiences of zero. They literally were speaking to no one. <laughs> exactly. It would be the doctor going out to dinner with the sales rep and getting paid. And, you know, the deal was you keep prescribing a lot of substance. And if you don't, we're going to take you off the speaker program. Does the patient enter into this calculation at all? No, you've got to keep writing it no matter what patients are turning up at the office this week. As I read the narrative, the forward propulsive narrative, you do take some time to point out the effect on real people. And I wanted to do that in this interview as well. So could you just take a moment and talk about someone, they take this, their doctor gives it to them. I would imagine, at least in most cases that you talk about, it's not with a wink and a nudge. It's the doctor is prescribed. They are asking for pain medicine and they're getting it from their doctor. Perhaps they don't know how potent it is or aren't worried about the addictive qualities. What happens to them? One patient I talked to was a patient of this clinic in Mobile, Alabama, that was a real target of INSYS, uh, a marketing target. And in fact, so much so that CEO and founder of the company both go there to try and strike a sort of shady deal with these doctors. And at the other end of that is a patient, of course, but many patients. One of them was this woman, Tamison, and she went in and she really had no sense of, she was not someone who really followed the news. She wouldn't have recognized the term pill mill. Mm -hmm. She had no sense of like, you should be maybe a little wary about opioids and about a pain clinic. So this is not someone who's coming in as a so-called drug seeker. You know, there's a lot of demonization of pain patients. That's, that's not what this was. This was someone who did not know what she was getting into. She's suffering from pain after surgery, kind of a botched hernia surgery. And she's prescribed substance right off the bat at um, 600 micrograms, which is six times the recommended starting dose. Uh, and she becomes addicted. She told me right from the beginning, she knew she was in trouble. She kept taking more and more. She would run out of it early. And normally like a pain doctor would cut someone off in this circumstance, would try and refer them to treatment, but she stayed. And, you know, this clinic was such a mess that eventually like a nurse practitioner who was seeing her in her office literally passed out because she herself was addicted to and misusing opioids. And that was the wake up call that, you know, this patient sought treatment herself, but her, her, her life really had fallen apart by that point. Seems like um, Insys was doing a whole lot that was so apparently wrong. It wasn't necessarily a slam dunk that they'd get a conviction on RICO charges because it was, at least as uh, I read about it and you describe it, somewhat of a uh, unique or novel prosecution. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was it was groundbreaking. Um, normally, the way these things proceed is uh, that eventually the company settles and uh, that's the end of that. Well, in this case, they pressed criminal charges against the individuals who actually made these decisions at the top of the company. What that meant is the, the company couldn't settle it. The company wasn't even the defendant here, the, the people were. So they were gonna have to either plead guilty or fight in court. 
they did. They chose to fight. And that was typical of John Kapoor, the, the, the top guy. And what that meant was we had a trial and the mere existence of the trial was itself groundbreaking. You know, that's not what happens. Purdue Pharma, they settle. Uh, Cephalon, another opioid company, they settle. And not to mention all the pharma companies outside of opioids. So the trial, I mean, there's nothing like the public reckoning of a trial. And it was a really fascinating experience to watch because it's like you get the window into everything that happened inside the halls of this company. And you're right. It wasn't a slam dunk, uh, despite all this evidence that they left because they were prosecuting them for uh, racketeering conspiracy. They were kind of going for gold. So here are my questions about the implications of what you reported. One is, I got the sense that some of the stuff they were doing was so over the top. I wonder if it was unrepresentative of the real problem. I mean, I'm glad you put it in the book. It was compelling to read. But if people want to know, you know, what is the story of the opioid problem in America? It's actually not, you know, a a chemist, one malefactor who doesn't care about the rules and uh, a an exotic dancer and rap videos, that really doesn't actually describe the bulk of the problem. You're right. These guys were an outlier. They went way beyond the law and they were uniquely reckless in leaving evidence of it. Um, but these weren't new techniques. It isn't new to use a speaker program as a kind of indirect bribe. Like you're paying that doctor. Why are you paying him to get some FaceTime with him? Because you hope he prescribes. You know, it's not new to kind of massage the facts to get things through insurance. And nothing they did was truly new. And what I think you see in the book is that it's kind of like if you have a I draw an analogy that if you've got a 55 mile an hour speed limit in the business that's meant to protect the patients, INSYS was like, as you say, they're the outlier. They're the guys like going 85 and weaving in and out of traffic. Um, but, but what everybody else is doing <laughs> is still going 75 and still like, get, you know, getting a better and better radar detector and figuring out where they can get away with going 85 and gaming the system. And like, I don't think that ends just because INSYS got ticketed. As you point out, these speaker series, that has been something that prosecutors, but also the industry itself has looked to reform. It seems like there are other established ways of doing business that INSYS took advantage of. I'd like your thought on a couple of them. One is is it possible, is it advisable for the government to say when there are drugs that are too dangerous to be prescribed in off-use cases, they simply cannot be prescribed in off-use cases? That's interesting. It would be it would be a, a pretty radical change from the way these things are regulated because what the FDA says is, well, we just make judgments about medications and about what pharma companies can do in terms of marketing, but we don't regulate what doctors do. And in a way, the doctor is the source of the problem, they're the ones who have the power to go off label. And, you know, state medical boards are the ones that police doctors, but not all that well, in my opinion. So if you could have a system like that, where the doctor has to sign something that says this is the diagnosis, uh, I still think it would be gamed a little bit. But um, that's not a bad idea. With a drug this powerful, I'm not sure it should be prescribed ever off-label. You know, has it helped any off-label patients? Probably. There's probably some. But 
uh, I'm not sure it's worth it. What about the existence of these lists where you could find the number one through 10 prescribing doctors? I mean, I look at it like, like the drug itself is the missile, but that's the missile guidance system. <laughs> yeah. So that is kind of amazing to me that, that drug companies have access to all this data. You know, Vermont tried to make a law to outlaw that, and it was defeated in court on First Amendment grounds. In Insys's case, there was something even more perverse that went on, which is like the FDA said, well, these drugs are so serious and so potent that you need to have this like special closed system of distribution. Every every prescription is a matter of, of record, is tracked almost in real time. And the purpose is to protect patient safety and maybe weed out bad doctors, but but Insys ends up using it as like a marketing tool. They've got even better data now to, that they can exploit to target the top doctors. Do you think our society can prosecute itself out of the opioid epidemic? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, one good question you could raise about the Insys case is like, wh why did it get to the law, which is kind of like the backstop at the end of everything, right? That means like the regulations have failed all along the way that might have stopped Insys um, at, at an earlier point. I think you need better systems in place all the way from day one. The name of the book is The Hard Sell, Crime and Punishment at an Opioid Startup. Evan Hughes is the author. It's uh, simultaneously a rollicking read and a really disturbing statement about the state of things in uh, the United States and the pharmaceutical industry. Great talking to you, Evan. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Let's talk about some recent hard cases. The uh, undergraduate president of the Student Bar Association of NYU, Rina Workman, put out a statement saying essentially it's all Israel's fault and a job offer was withdrawn. From Win uh, the, the law firm Winston & Strong. Correct. Is that proper? Is that an example of cancellation? I think it's I, I think it's cancel culture. It fits our definition of, you know, uh, not exactly getting fired, but getting your job offer. It's basically like the getting fired, uh, rescinded based on your opinion is something that should give people some pause. Now, I, I always have to say this. I'm not saying that the company can't do it because from a First Amendment standpoint, it would be saying that, that they don't have a freedom of association right. So right. legally speaking, uh, obviously they can do it if, if they choose to. But I always try to get people to step back a second and think about a society that looked like we were heading towards, by the way, in 2020 and 2021, where the company itself has a bunch of political views. And if you disagree with them, um, even if they, that's your sincerely held belief, you, you, you can't work. <laughs> and if every company had that, um, even though they'd have the freedom of association to make those kind of decisions, that would be a disaster for democracy. It would basically mean like the rich bosses could decide what everybody's uh, everybody's allowed to say. So I always, I keep on warning people to take to give some pause. One, you know, I make the point that just because it's cancel culture that you think is justified doesn't mean it's not cancel culture. Ilias Soman, I think, wrote something exactly saying this on, on the Vol conspiracy uh, today. Um, but also just think about the implications of a society in which 
you know, your job depends on you shutting up. Yeah. But what about the argument that, okay, this wasn't her expression as a private citizen. She was doing it as uh, president of the Student Bar Association. And that shows such spectacularly spectacularly bad judgment that the law firm could infer that that sort of judgment might be visited upon their clients in the future. My preferred approach to dealing with, um, well, one, I want people to stop mechanically hiring from elite higher education like they currently are. I believe that we would live in a much healthier society if our ruling class, if our fanciest corporations, you know, got more people from Ohio State than they got from uh, Harvard. I think that would actually be a wildly healthier country. But when it comes to the, you know, all of the things still stand about kind of like the idea of publicly saying an unpopular opinion is going to lose you a job, you know, uh, create some problems. But my biggest concern about employers as an employer from some of these schools if someone you know has this really extreme point of view, is I want to sit down with them and figure out, okay, we've had this problem with elite school graduates, by the way. They show up and think they're morally superior and intellectually superior to everybody else. And they won't let me, they will try to get, they will campaign to get people fired if they disagree with them. Uh, the, you know, the conservative, you know, who does our IT, you know, could, could be the target next. I think the preferable thing would be for that law firm to talk uh, to this particular employee and try to figure out, are you someone who's going to show up here and say it's my way or the highway? Um, And if they're if they're saying, no, I was, uh, you know, no, I actually I I can even if people think that 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 uh, that all of my opinions are completely monstrous, I can totally work with them. Um, Then they they should consider, you know, maybe there was a change of heart. Maybe this is actually, uh, you know, someone in in a moment when they weren't thinking things through. I, I basically want to give them a chance. Yeah. So at Harvard, not exactly pivoting away from the cultural hegemony of elite institutions, but at Harvard, three members resigned from the uh, Institute of Politics after that institute failed to issue uh, a condemnation of Hamas. And this is there's no canceling uh, involved But I want you to assess, because I thought it was thorny, I want you to assess what their point was. Their point was, I'll quote from uh, some of their statements, to say we are disgusted is an understatement. Silence is complicity. Silence is irreconcilable with the principle of moral conviction. Silence is why many students do not feel safe at Harvard right now. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, our overall position is that schools should adopt what's called the Calvin Report from the University of Chicago, which is... Our school will not take um, unnecessary sort of like political positions. Um, I, I mean unnecessary by like generally not taking political positions, period. But sometimes like UVA, for example, saying, I'm concerned about our students who are over there and their families. Like that's fine. That's always within within the realm of things right. that they can do. So we, we like political neutrality. However, schools like Harvard suddenly talking a good game on free speech and political neutrality right now when they've been terrible about it for my entire career people calling bs on that people people saying that this is nonsense this is just hypocritical they're just afraid they're just afraid to disagree with their own uh, with their own students they have a point because meanwhile what i'm hearing from university presidents is they're saying you know i'd really like to condemn the horrible you know murder and rapes um, that were happening but my faculty and students would freak out so some of what the donors are saying is like Grow a backbone. Like, like yeah. you, you commented on every other damn thing, and this is monstrous. You should comment on this. So they have a point. If, a, if schools take this opportunity and they say, you know what? We now have discovered political neutrality and, and uh, expansive ideas of freedom of speech, and we mean this forevermore, I'll take it. However, I've watched this happen time and time again. When the threat comes from off campus, 
universities, you know, with sixty billion dollars in the bank, um, start acting like they're like the little, you know, like um, uh, they're the little guy, you know, and essentially circle the wagons and defend academic freedom and free speech. When it comes from student groups on campus, when it comes from faculty on campus, they immediately capitulate. So the the uh, skepticism that this is a real change at Harvard or, or these other schools uh, is 100% warranted. I am uh, in my Substack. I talk about how cynical and skeptical I am. If this is the moment where the, where there's a, a deeper change, you know that's good. But I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. So this case, to be uh, clear, this wasn't a case of them trying to get the administration to say something. That in parallel is going on, and and major donors have both have hired essentially mobile sandwich boards to shame people who signed the statement. But my question is: these are students criticizing their student organization that had a vote that didn't want to issue a statement, even though they've issued this student organization has issued many many statements uh, in the past about all manner of things, and their complaint was um, echoing. I guess the vernacular of their milieu to say we are disgusted is an understatement. Silence is complicity. Silence is why many students do not feel safe. And they went on to say, wait, I have the quote here. Harm. Bah, bah, bah. Yeah. Um, nothing condemning terror. Oh, sorry. Doxing verbal or physical threats and Islamophobia of any kind are abhorrent and must be condemned. Nothing condemning terrorism, however put students at risk. So what about that? I mean, do you excuse students for arguing in this manner? It seems effective to the people they're arguing with. Maybe it's the only thing they know, or maybe you do say, you know, silence is in silence is in violence, period. Well, I mean, dropping out of your group for gross hypocrisy seems to be a big part of what they're saying. And certainly, like, you have every right in the world to drop out of a student group if you think that they're, you know, if they're being hypocritical or, or dishonest. When it comes to silence, uh, silence is violence. That's not, you know, that's not a term I love. I, um, but so what? You know, like, it, it's a it's a popular argument they make on campus. I do always like to set up that, uh, you, you know, the like how many tensions there are in this, that essentially you're required to say nothing in some cases and you're required silence is violence, like it, it, it's kind of impossible to win. But if you're saying I'm disgusted with my organization for being hypocritical and I'm stepping down, you, you know, like, I don't, I'm not really too troubled by that. That's it for the Saturday show. Corey Wara produces The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Monday is the day that I shall talk to you again.